So the topic, even though we left the month of Adar and we're the month of Nisan, we're still on the topic of Simcha, we'll be there for a while. <coughs> and the subtopic in Simcha is how to be happy when we're not happy with ourselves. And again, not happy with ourselves, not in terms of anything that we did wrong in particular, but we're unhappy with our, with our nature, with our struggles, with our difficulties, difficulties in, as in temptations and bad desires and impulses and instincts. And last week what we said, after getting into the idea that it's a mitzvah opportunity and that it's arrogance, that we're upset about this, but the, we ultimately we got to the point of understanding that perhaps the biggest mistake that we make is that we view our struggles and our temptations and our other character flaws as hindrances to our service of Hashem, Tarvedis Hashem. We view them as something that uh, impedes our ability to serve Hashem, when in fact, not only doesn't it impede our service of Hashem, it constitutes our service of Hashem. Our struggles don't, again, don't inhibit our Avedis Hashem, they are our Avedis Hashem. The struggles that you have were tailor-made for you, given to you by Hashem, and Hashem says, this is how I want you to serve me, um, by overcoming those struggles. And every time that we overcome a struggle, we overcome a temptation, and we don't act upon our impulse, that is our service of Hashem. By doing that, we, um, we subjugate and suppress our Yitzhahara down here, our Klippa down here, and that in turn has a cosmic effect and causes that much Klippa is repressed and subjugated um, above. And we give Hashem a tremendous, tremendous amount of nachas and cause a tremendous tremendous revelation of God in the higher worlds by doing so. <coughs> We're holding inside page Lamed Dalad, nine lines from the bottom, that's opposite of page 66. We're holding in chapter 27 of Tanya. For those of you who have been here from the very beginning, I don't know. Uh, you. I've been. I fall. I don't know if anyone else. But we started off, right? You've been here? We started off Peter, Kaulaf, and Tanya with a bunch of questions. And as we proceeded through the chapters, we answered these questions <coughs> one by one. And we finally now arrived at the answer to the last question. 27 Prakimin, and a year and a half later, we've arrived at the answer to the question we asked. Again, a year and a half ago in Perik Aleph. Al-Tabit says, it brings down, the Gemara says in Sechtas Baba Basra, that Eve turns to Hashem, and he tells him, Rebbein Nishalaylam, Barasat Sadiqim, Barasat Rishoyim, you've created Sadiqim, you've created Rishoyim. <coughs> so the Balatanya asks, what does that mean? Hashem doesn't create Sadiqim, He doesn't create Rishoyim, He creates people. And people choose whether to be a Sadiq or whether to be a Rasha. And in fact, he brings down what the Gemara says in Masech Das Nida that before, that before a person is, uh, before a child is born, so the Malach, a Malach comes to Hashem and brings uh, with the Neshama of the child, and he says, Hashem, I need the specs. I need to know what this child is going to be. Is the child going to be wealthy? Is the child going to be poor? Is the child going to be healthy? Is the child going to be ill? Is the child going to live? How long, how long is the child going to live? Is the child going to be wise? Is the child going to be foolish? A series of questions. And Hashem decides. But the Gemara says, Sadiq virasha laika amar. The Malach doesn't ask Hashem, is this child going to be a Sadiq or a Rasha? Because that's not predetermined. That's not something which is decided from above. But rather, every one of us has a Bechira Chapshis. We have free choice. And as the Rambam says in Hilchus Tshuva, every one of us can be a tzaddik or a rasha. So what does it mean when Iyayif told Hashem, Barasa tzaddikim, barasa rishayim? 
So the first half of the question, what does it mean, Barasat Tzadikim? The Alter Rebbe answered in chapter 13. He says, that it doesn't mean that Hashem created people who will be Tzadikim. Obviously everyone has free choice. But it means that He created certain people with the potential to be a Tzadik. A Tzadik meaning a perfect person, a person who, ne- who never struggles, a person who transforms their Yitzhahara and their Nefshah Bahamas, a person, again, who doesn't struggle. Not every single person has the ability to reach that level. The Tzadik as described by the Alter Rebbe and Tanya. So Barasa Tzadikim means Hashem created certain souls that have that potential. Now the fact that a Neshama has the potential doesn't mean that the person will reach that potential. Because that person who has the potential to be a Tzadik also has the potential to be a Rasha. But at least we've made sense out of Barasa Tzadikim. Barasa Tzadikim means you've created a certain class, a certain niche category of people who have the ability to go all the way and, be, and to be Tzadikim. Most of us don't have that ability. But that doesn't answer what Barasa Rishoyim means. Is there a certain class of people that have the ability to be a Russia? Everyone has the ability to be a Russia. We all have free choice. So Baras, that Sadiqim we answered. But what does it mean Baras What does it mean that Hashem created Rishoyim? Inside, and this is what he meant when he said Baras Rishoyim. He didn't mean Chas Rishoyim. That Hashem created certain people, and these people are condemned to be Rishayim. Ella, rather, sheyagia alehem kemaisa harishoyim b'machshavta mirhurim levad. That in their thoughts, in their minds, these are people who will constantly have to deal with the inner Russia. Vehemiu nolchamim tamid. These are people who will always have to battle. To um, remove these thoughts from their minds, in order to suppress the powers of Sitra Akhra, they'll never be able to completely eliminate it. This is something which is accomplished only by Tzadikim. Hashem created a certain class of people, and that's most people, that as much as they try, they'll always have the thoughts and the impulses and the instincts of a Russia. And why did Hashem do that? The purpose is that these people should fight with these thoughts and fight with these impulses and instincts, and thereby um, to suppress the Nefshah Bahamas and suppress Klippa, but they'll never be able to completely eliminate it because that's not their role, that's not their job, that's not their function, that's not what they were created for. They were created to struggle. But it's a benefit. <coughs> that is a benefit. In here, the Rebbe said, I said, it's a, it's like the doctrine of Roshoyim, you said. So, why? He didn't, when he said Barash Roshoyim, he didn't mean literally Roshoyim. He meant people who um, have Russia te- Russia like tendencies. Which is a main thing. Okay. Yeah. Does that mean that the potential to be in Russia? No. Potential to be a Bainani, actually. Right. A Russia with the potential to be a Bainani. The person, right, the, as we've spoken on several occasions, the Bainani means the struggler. Why do you struggle? Because you have Russia-like tendencies. If you didn't have Russia-like tendencies, you wouldn't struggle. So Hashem created certain people who, in their inside, they're Rishayim. Their hearts are that of a Russia. <coughs> and Dr. Rebbe is saying, that's fine. That's totally fine. I remember it was a while ago, I was having a conversation with a woman, and she was telling me that she... She was being very hard on herself, and obviously she's upset at herself. And why? She's not a good mother. So I said, what do you mean by that? She says, I lack a maternal instinct. Sometimes I just want, you know, I want, I want to be myself. I don't want to, uh, 
I don't want to take care of my kids. I resent sometimes that I have to uh, spend so much time taking care of my children. I want to have more freedom. Is that okay? So how does that impact your actual mothering? She said it doesn't. In other words, at the end of the day, I'm there for my kids. So why does this bother you? Because I lack the maternal instinct. And you think this is exactly what this Tanya is coming here and saying. And we're all hard on ourselves in different ways because we're not naturally this, or we guys, we, we're not naturally kind, naturally good, naturally giving, or we are naturally um, in certain ways uh, um, predisposed to doing things that are bad for us or that are wrong. And the Altair said there's nothing wrong with not having a maternal instinct or a paternal instinct or whatever it may be. Everyone was given their struggles in life and those struggles, again, that is your avayda. That is, those struggles are not a problem. That is how Hashem created you and, and your job is to fight that instinct your entire life and you'll never get rid of it. And that's fine. Further, five lines from the bottom. <clears throat> Hashem has two different sorts of nachas, two different sorts of pleasure that Hashem receives. Echad, one type of pleasure that Hashem receives is mebit la sitter achra legami, from the complete elimination of sitter achra. The ishabchu mimiridu lemiska and the transformation of bitterness to sweetness, umichashaychal anahira and darkness to light. And this is ayideya tzadikim. This is accomplished by tzadikim. Vashenis, what is the second type of pleasure that Hashem receives? Kadiskafya sitter achra, when sitter achra is suppressed. Ba'ida bitakfa ukvurasa, while it's still at full strength. Umagbi'atzba kanesher, and it soars up like an eagle. But umishama meirida Hashem, and Hashem brings it down. Bisarusa dilatata. Through an awakening from below, <laughs> through the strugglers, that's what we accomplish. That the klipa on the sitarachra is at full force and is brought down temporarily. That is another pleasure that Hashem has. and this is what the pasuk says. This is a pasuk in Bereshis. Yitzchak turns to his son Esav. And he says, prepare for me, please, delicacies, kasharahafti, as I like them. So you notice he didn't say prepare for me a delicacy. But matamim lashen rabim. Yitzhak asked for delicacies in the plural. And that is because there's shnei minei nachasruach. There are two different types of pleasure. Two different types of delicacies. And it says over there that this pasuk, Aseli Matame, make for me delicacies, is, and its source is the statement of the Shekhinah, what Hashem says to us, to Knesset Yisrael, to all, to, it's to Hashem's children, to all of Kuala Yisrael. Hashem asks of us, I want you to make for me delicacies. Just like when it comes to physical delicacies. There are two different types of delicacies. Two different types of delicious foods. One type of delicious food is sweet foods. Cake, cookies, ice cream, etc. That's one type of delicacy. But vasheni, there's another type of delicacy. Midvarim charifim, from foods that are sharp, echamutsim, or tart. Rak shemusubalim musukanim hetev, but they are spiced and prepared well. Ad shanasu madanim, to the point that they become delicacies. Lahashiv hanefesh, they restore the soul. 
And the same thing, Hashem has two types of delicacies on His menu. <coughs> and Hashem turns to us, the Klal Yisrael, and He says, Aseli matamim, I want you to make for me delicacies. Hashem says, there are two types of service that I love. One type of service is sweet. That is the avoid of the tzaddik. Perfect person. That is the person who serves Hashem with love and with fear and with passion and excitement. And that's one type, that's Hashem's ice cream. But who serves Hashem his entree? Who serves Hashem the main dish? We don't eat ice cream or cake for the main dish. Chalav Yisrael, I guess. Chalav ice cream, but it still doesn't become the main dish. Yes, so that's Chalav Yisrael. But where does Hashem get his main dish from? The spicy, what? The tart. For that, the, the struggler, why? Because to make Hashem the second type of food, you need salt, and you need pepper, and you need vinegar, and a tzaddik doesn't have that. There's nothing salty or peppery. There's nothing of that sort in the avoid of the tzaddik. The avoid of the tzaddik is all sweet. Salt. We can't eat salt. You can't eat pepper. You can't eat uh, all, all these things. What? Right? To add it in, right? Okay. You know what your salt and your pepper are, and your service of Hashem. Your struggles. Your negative desires. Your lack of desire to do to to to, to study Torah and do mitzvahs. All those struggles that you have, all those things that you hate about yourself, those are the ingredients that make your avodah, your service for Hashem, so tasty. Those things, obviously, if you only have the salt and you only have the pepper and not the food, then, <laughs> in other words, if you only have the struggle but not the service of Hashem, you know, then that's, uh, that's not a delicacy exactly. But we have to understand that Hashem created two different types of people and each one has their job. <coughs> and if you want to say that the, everything in the physical world is a reflection of the spiritual, which foods do we eat more? Do we eat more ice cream or more, uh, more salt and pepper sandwich in, you know, in, a, in a food? The sweet foods are a small percentage of what we eat. The, our primary diet is the other type of food. And by Hashem, what? Where do we see this in it's a, it's a very, very interesting spiral. That's why I prefaced it by saying, if we follow the analogy, it, yeah, it doesn't say that. This is my, my thoughts. Al-Tarebbe does not say that. One second. And, but, but we see that also played out, practically. How many tzaddikim are there and how many strugglers are there? So apparently, Hashem has more of a need or greater of a desire, just like we have more of a need for the non-ice cream foods, for the struggles. And Hashem created two people and each one gives Hashem its own distinct pleasure. Just like as much as we enjoy a good you know, steak or a good food, if we never had anything sweet, that also would bother us. You need both the balance. Hashem wants both. The balance. There's the beautiful, perfect, sweet avoda, which is not sullied by any sort of struggle, any, anything bitter, anything sharp. That's one kind of pleasure. And the struggler gives Hashem another pleasure. Yes. My question is, why Balatanya give us all this, what you just said now, Dafka with Esa, with the Matamim? Esa was the opposite. He's not the one that you can say about him, give Nachatuach to Hashem, he didn't give Nachatuach to his father. <coughs> but why all this Matamim came Dafka with Esa? It's a great question. I'll get, I'll get to that in a second. Well, I, w- I would just comment something different. This week's Parsha by Yikra, all of the Karbanos, that in general we put salt, um, on the court, That's but correct. I, I don't know if the Balatani in the Torah or wherever connects it in terms of you know um, that the korban somehow. Um, I understand a korban chatas, you know, where it's a sin offering, but does the Balatani in in Chumash deal that the korban has has this aspect of the salt? That's a good question. Something similar, and we'll, I can talk about it after class. All right. Yeah. Um, you think of the think it's Gemara that says God created the. Yetzirahara, and he created Torah Tavlin, Gemara Kedushin. Tavlin meaning, is it meaning a balm, or does it mean a spice, or it means each? That's interesting. The Tavlin literally means a spice, which will make it taste good. Yeah. In other words, the Yetzirahara can also taste good. (coughs) Oh, yeah? So the Torah spices up. Of course. 
Tastes good. But the Torah doesn't spice up the taste. It, it, it removes the taste. Don't say the chet, the Yitzhahara. Don't say the chet. So the Iker, according to Gemara, seemingly the Iker is the Yitzhahara. Like we're saying here, the Iker person is, uh, is there. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. And, and interesting thought. So let's talk about Esav for a second. Because again, in the Chumash, this, this Pasuk, Aseli Matamim, is addressed to Esav. Again, Tikkun Ezeir says that, you know, every single Pasuk that there is in Torah, really um, is alluding to higher spiritual realities, but there's... Now, Esau is an interesting person. Because Esau makes no sense. Where does Esau come from? How is it that the son of Yitzchak and Rivka is an evil person? I mean, even if we deal, you know, physiologically, if you have two sets of perfect genes, shouldn't only perfection come from there? Well, Rivka came from Bali of Azar. She was. Recessive gene. Recessive gene. Came gene. <laughs> and uh, you're making a point. And there are those Mepharshim, I don't remember who exactly, but in the, if you look in Mekrais Gedeilus, in the beginning of Parshas Teilus, so it says over there that the um, Yitzchak, he was 40 years old when he married Rivka, right? She was. Rivka bas psuel achais lovan arami mepadan aram. Says he was 40 years old, right before the Yitzhak and Rivka, uh, before um, Esav, the story of the birth of Esav and Yaakov, it says, it reminds us again that who was Rivka, mm-hmm. that she is the daughter of uh, Suel, the sister of Lavan. So there's a Mepharshim, I don't remember who, but it's in the Makrais Kedarlis, who says, why does it saying here, in case you're wondering, where does Esav come from? So you have to know that there's a. But there has to be something deeper here, because are we really going to say that Rivka had a recessive damage gene? Rivka. It's one of the emois, one of the... It's difficult to say, right? And by the way, look at it. You could say a person has free choice. That you could say. You can have a perfect father, a perfect mother, but everyone has free choice. No, no one's deprived of free choice. But the problem with that is that Esau, when he was in his mother's womb, was already evil, <laughs> pushing to go to the to, 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 to house of Edezara. So you can't say that really he was good and fine, had incredible, beautiful midas and perfect, but just later on in life, he chose a wrong path due to influence. You know, if it wasn't, um, it wasn't nature, it was nurture, right? He got caught up in the wrong crowd. You can't say that. He wasn't in the wrong crowd when he was with Yaakov and his mother's stomach. So the Rebbe talks about this, and the Rebbe says, the Rambam and Shemayna Prakim, which is the Sektama to Perkiyavis, so the Rambam talks about two different types of people. There's what he calls the Chassid Hamaula, the Rambam talks about, the Chassid Hamaula, which means the perfect Chassid. It's not talking Chassid in today's terminology, but uh, in the classical sense. And the Koivish is Yisrael, the one who um, conquers his Yitzhahara. Which is very similar to what we're talking about over here, the Tzaddik and the Benini. The struggler and the, and the perfect person. And because Maisa of is similar banim, so everything that there is in Klal Yisrael today has to find its source by the Ovis. So where do we find the, the Koivish as Yitzray? By the Avis, that would be Esav. So there wasn't enough, Esav wasn't a flawed person. He was a person who struggled. <coughs> and that doesn't, what? Didn't see, he didn't conquer the Yitzray. That was his choice. That was his choice. But he wasn't essentially a flawed person. That was totally part of the plan. And by the way, that's why Yitzchak wanted to give the bracha to Esav. Then maybe he would cope, he would conquer Esau. Because Yitzchak saw Esau as a struggler. He knew that he wasn't Yaakov Avinu. This is, we're talking about Yitzchak. But Yitzchak saw the advantage of the Koivishness Yitzchak. And he was hoping that maybe also with the Brachas that will give Esau more strength and to be able to uh, do his Avaidah more. And Based on this, perhaps we can understand why the Pasuk of Aseli Matamim is addressed to Esau. 
Because this is specifically Yisrael turning to Esav and saying to him, don't be hard on yourself. Hashem has two types of, uh, of delicacies. Your avoida, uh, uh, which you can serve Hashem with, with, with your struggles and with your difficulties, that also can give a tremendous amount of satisfaction and happiness to Hashem. Yeah. Although we see that Hashem through Rivka had, had something different in mind, that Yaakov Avinu should get the brachos, not Esau. So that Yitzchak, as, as you said from the Balatanya, had in mind that, that, that Esau was a... I didn't say that from the Balatanya. Oh, the Reb, the, the Reb, the, the, the Rebbe says the Rebbe. that. <coughs> With the differentiate, there's, sweet, there's, what, there's what the Balatanya says, and there's what the Rebbe says, and there's what I'm saying. All right. Okay. So the Balatanya says, he brings down the Pasuk, and he doesn't mention Yitzchak and Rivka. Okay. Then a question was asked, why was this practically addressed to Esau? So the Rebbe speaks in general, how was it that there was this flawed gene? And the Rebbe responds, it wasn't a flawed gene. So based on these two things, I'm tying something together, Bederech Efsher, and saying that maybe this is why this Pasuk, Aseli Matamim, is dressed to Esau, based on what the Rebbe says, that Esau had this advantage of Kovish Yitzre, of being the one who conquered his Yitzhahara, so it makes sense why Yitzhak would have addressed this to Esau. So all I could say is that regrettably, Yitzchak's cheshbon wasn't fulfilled because we see Hashem through Rivka said, no, Yaakov is going to get the main brachos, not Esau. Correct, but Yitzchak's investment paid off. How did it pay off? Because the fact that we have Torah today is because of that. Some of the greatest leaders and the people in the Messiah came from Esau. Remeir, Rebekiva, Unkulos, many, many of the people who came from Edom. And that was because of Esau, really, his neshama, he had a high neshama. And uh, the seeds planted by Yitzchak, they, um, they grew many generations later. Which is, in general, a rule in life. We plant seeds, we don't always see right away the results, but um, somehow or other, they always come back. And they, um, and listen, I'll pick up all this, you know, Esau was Elam Hatayu, and Yitzchak was Elam Hatiku, and Yaakov was Elam Hatiku, and there's a lot, there's a lot on it. But suffice it to say, the very simplistic understanding that Yitzchak was this uh, foolish old man who was blind and had no clue what's going on, that obviously doesn't hold water in the, um, according to Chassidus, and even Pashib Shat. We say every day, you know, Elke Avraham, Elke Yitzchak, Elke Yaakov. You know, Yitzchak, the, the, the obvious, the greatest of the great. And to say that this, that this Yitzchak was someone who's, uh, you know, twisted around his finger by his own son is not, uh, you know, doesn't. Um, but for, for many, many decades, doesn't hold the water. Yeah. No. No question. <laughs> I want to point out something we've discussed on several occasions. That we talk about a tzaddik and we talk about a Benini, and we talk about a Russia, and then we say, what am I? Okay, I'm a struggler. In truth, however, as we've I've mentioned on many occasions, what am I about to say? Yeah. We're all Tzadikim, right? We're all Beninim, we're all Rishayim. We're all, we're all everything. You're going to say it in the Yerkada. There we go. That's 100% correct. If we're looking at our child and saying, is my child a Chacham or a Rasha or a Tam or Shein and Deilisha or making a big mistake? We might have a child actually who's predisposed in one, of, in one of those directions or maybe has a dominant streak in one of those directions, but every child is every one of them. We have to know the Chacham moments, so we answer them like a Chacham, and the Rasha moments, we answer them like a Rasha, etc. Everything in Torah is applicable to everyone. Yes? Just a question. Why does it say Chacham and not Tzadik? You're saying Rasha, and we're talking about Rasha and Ben Benonim. Why does the Haggadah say Chacham and not Tzadik? Because it's not talking about Tzadik. It's talking about a Chacham. So why the. It just seems like a disparity between the. Because a Chacham and a Tzadik are two different things. And this is another discussion for another time. But uh, it's too. It, it, uh, and a tzaddik implies something else, and it's not talking about a tzaddik, it's talking about a chacham. So what do you do if you have a child who's a tzaddik who asks you a question? That's a good question. I don't know, that's a, another son. Maybe the tzaddik doesn't have too many questions. Um, we could talk more after class. 
So what do I mean to say? That means that we're all a Russia. We get that, right? That we're all a Russia. We all trip up sometimes. We're all a Bainini, meaning to say there are those areas in which we struggle and we're successful. And we're all tzaddikim, meaning that there are areas in which we don't struggle anymore. Not only don't we struggle anymore in those areas, we have a, we have a chayis and we have a geshmak. We enjoy doing a mitzvah. Certain, everyone has their, their areas, their tzaddik areas, their rasha areas, their benini areas. <coughs> now, rasha areas are unacceptable. Meaning if there's an area in which we're a rasha, we have to try to uh, be at the very least a benini in that area. So when we say over here that Hashem, there are two different types of delicacies that we serve Hashem. Hashem has two different types of pleasures. It doesn't just mean that person A, he's a tzaddik. Hashem receives that kind of pleasure from him. And person B, he's a benini, he's the struggler. And Hashem receives that type of pleasure from him. But it means also within every single one of us, we give Hashem two different types of pleasure. There are those mitzvahs that we do which are sweet and that are beautiful. We all know which mitzvahs those are. The mitzvahs that we enjoy, the mitzvahs that we take pleasure in. You know, um, we're coming now to Pesach. Maybe some of the women downstairs will take issue with what I'm saying, that you know, Pesach can be a yamtiv, which is a pleasurable yamtiv, but uh, I think there are many people that you know, comes the night of the Seder, is it a struggle? Uh, really, I'd rather be lying on my couch and uh, reading a book. But Hashem wants me to come to the Seder, so I'll go to the Seder. Uh, I talk for myself, and I'm assuming for a lot of other people around there. You come home on Shul, on Pesach, by night, you're completely psyched up. And I mean, usually, I was accept- there are always exceptions to the rule. You didn't sleep, didn't sleep enough that day, or whatever. Second night is always easier than the first night. but. Um, there are those mitzvahs that we they're geschmack we'd feel horrible if we didn't have them and there's a beauty to those mitzvahs those beauty, those mitzvahs that we do with excitement with passion, those are the sweet mitzvahs those are the ice cream mitzvahs and then there are those things that are difficult where we struggle And we have to know that there's value. Those are also delicacies, a different type of, of delicacy. There's value to both of our services of Hashem. A value to both of them. Let's do insight. And this is what the Pasuk says. Call Paul Hashem Lamaneu. Pasuk says, everything that Hashem did, everything that Hashem did that He created as Lamaneu was for His own sake. And also a Rasha for an evil day. So what does this mean, this Pasuk? Pasuk Shat means that everything that Hashem created, He created for His own glory. As the Mishnah says, Whatever Hashem created in His world, is everything is the was only created to increase Hashem's glory. If that's the case of everything that Hashem created, serves a divine purpose, is there to serve Hashem. Then why? What's the point of a rasha? So the pasuk says, says, and also a rasha. A rasha also is created for Hashem's purposes. And why is that for an evil day? Meaning that sometimes when Hashem wants to bring punishment in this world, He wants to make an evil day. So who's He going to do it through? Who's going to be His instrument? Who's going to carry out the evil decree that Hashem has? So that's what the Russia is there for. So the Russia also serves a divine purpose. Yes, obviously the Russia will be punished for his, uh, for his bad choices, but ultimately that which He does also is a service to Hashem. In the Shoah, it was a lot of Rashaim, but Arab Sadiqim got together and got killed also. That's true. You want me to, you want the two-minute two answer on why Hashem made the Holocaust? Next week. Yeah. Next week, okay. 
If you give me two years also, uh, it's not going to help. <laughs> Salter Rebbe here is going to give a, a, a pshat, a chsidish pshat. <coughs> Pirush. What does it mean? Vigam Rasham. Al Rebbe is going to say also an evil person. But here when he says evil, he doesn't mean an evil person. As in actuality, a person is evil. But as we just learned earlier about... Um, but he said, a person who is uh, wired like an evil person, which is all of us. Whoever is a struggler is wired as an evil person. Why did Hashem create people who are wired to be Rishoyim? Because their job is to turn Ra into Yoyim. To turn Ra into day, evil into day. Inside, that when a Rasha, when he doesn't, when he holds back from acting upon his evil intent, he causes that from his ra, from his evil intent, from his his rasha wiring, from his bad instincts and thoughts, what's he creating? Day and light above when the satarachra is suppressed. And uh, the glory of Hashem is um, spread all over above. You notice he says that it makes light above, not below. Because you struggle and you remain in the darkness. The tzaddik is the one who not only is it light above, but also the tzaddik illuminates himself. The tzaddik gets rid of the Yitzhahara, the tzaddik gets rid of the Nefshabahamis. There is no more darkness anymore. Everything is uh, beautiful and light. The struggler, he causes that above, in the higher worlds, is a tremendous, unleashes a tremendous amount of oil, a tremendous <coughs> amount of light. But down here, he remains in the dark. But the tzaddik, the, the, the benini, the struggler, has to understand that this is also lemanehu, this Hashem created for himself, because there's a tremendous benefit and a tremendous... Um, pleasure that Hashem receives from our struggles. That's the bottom line. Our struggles don't inhibit our ability to, to serve Hashem. They actually um, they actually are our service. You want to know how do you serve Hashem? Look at your struggles. That's where Hashem wants you to serve Him. I don't know where I, where I read that if you struggle, Hashem knows that you can take it. That's why He gave it. I don't know where I read it somewhere. Yeah, he said it almost every Kabrani. Hashem doesn't give you a Messiah only if you know the Right. And also, Gamala Shikhana. That's yeah, the that's, that's Hashem doesn't give you a struggle that you can't handle. And your struggle is your way of serving Hashem. It's your tikkun. Yeah. Why do you say Hashem doesn't give you a struggle you can't handle? Why does a person every once in a while feel, oh, this struggle is too much for me, when he knows this is a struggle he can handle, yet he feels overwhelmed by it? What's that all about? Why does a person feel overwhelmed by the struggle? Yeah. Why does he feel, vada? it's too much for me, I can't take it? Who feels like that? Huh? <laughs> I think everybody does. <laughs> We spoke about this last week. I'm going to repeat. What we're saying over here is not only a mechanism of how to be happy despite your struggles, but is also how to be able to win your struggles. Because if you change your perspective on your struggles, you know, there's the famous, um, famous muscle that's given. Maybe it's from Reb Nachman, I, I'm not sure. Famous muscle. There's a person who was in prison for many years, decades, 20 years, 25 years. And his job in prison was that there was this uh, heavy, heavy wheel attached to the wall of his cell. And for 10 hours a day, he had to turn that wheel very, very hard. And whenever he asked the prison guards, what is this wheel? They would, t they would tell him that the other side of the wall 
there's a mill, a water mill, a flour mill, some sort of mill. And by you uh, turning, the, turning the wheel, you're supplying the whole nearby neighborhood with whatever it is. Flour, water, whatever was producing that mill. After many years in prison, he comes out, goes out, and the first thing he does is, he goes to the other side of the wall. You want to see. What? You want to see what he did all these years? And there was nothing there. As the story goes, he had a heart attack and he died on the spot. Why? What happened? He worked. He worked hard. Let's make a difference if this is producing, it isn't producing. What? That's what was bothering him, that he has uh, such a clear, uh, it's, it's more than that. The Friedrich Rebbe says a story, also a marshal. He says there was once a nobleman who was um, traveling in his carriage, and he passes by a field. And he sees over there, there's a peasant with a sickle, and he's um, harvesting wheat. Now this peasant, he, he was so athletic. It was such a beautiful to watch, the rhythm, the way he lifted the sickle and knocked the wheat. It was, it, was, it was an art, it was beautiful. So the nobleman stops, uh, tells the coachman to stop the coach and he goes out and he tells the person, he says, um, how many hours a day do you work? He says, I work out of nine hours a day. How much do you get paid? A ruble a day. He says, you know what? I have an idea. I want you starting tomorrow, you have a new job. You're gonna come to my palace. I want you to work only five hours a day, not nine hours a day. And I'm going to pay you two rubles. And what I want you to do is I want you to stand. I'm, well, I'm doing my business. You stand with your sickle. And just pretend that you're chopping the, the wheat. It's so beautiful to watch. So the guy says, that's a, a pay raise and less work, sure. So the next day he reports. And for five hours, he's... And the day after he comes. And then after two days or three days, he goes to the nobleman, the potter, and says, I quit. What? I'll, raise your, I'll, I'll give you some more money. He says, no, it's not about that. He says, what? He said, so the words in Russian, I remember, I, I, I don't see any uh, results to my work. I, I, can't, I don't see the product of my work. So we can be paid, uh, you can be paid anything, but to, to, to work uh, needlessly and purposelessly, <coughs> that's also the story with, you know, with the wheel, there's nothing more painful than just to waste your energy. And if you know there's purpose to it, we can work very hard, as long as we know that we're accomplishing and we're achieving and we're gaining something. The problem with our struggles is that if we view our struggles as worthless, as unnecessary, as hindrances, then they become very, very difficult to deal with. And we feel we can't, I can't anymore. This was a sheer. How much can I just, uh, how, how long can I keep on going and, and, and turning that wheel and turning that wheel and turning that wheel, I'm, going, I'm getting nowhere. Not getting anywhere. I'm like a hamster on the, what's the on a wheel. But if you change your perspective on your struggles and you realize they're not useless, they're not meaningless, that's your Aveda. And Hashem is looking down and you're serving Hashem his entree, his child and Kogel. That's you and your struggles. Then they're not so difficult. I'm not going to say they're not difficult. That would be that wouldn't be true. Just like to turn the wheel is difficult, and to and to, to harvest nine hours a day is difficult. But work is bearable if we know that it's useful and productive and accomplishing. It's unbearable if it's not accomplishing anything. So what I would tell you is is that if you're saying what do I do, what, what does a person do if they look at the their workload, they're struggling to say it's too much. I think that the problem is that they have a wrong perspective on the struggle. If they were able to view it properly, then it wouldn't be too much. It would be very difficult still. But it wouldn't be too much. And the person has the ability to be besimcha despite the struggles also. So we have a few minutes left. And um, so I want to talk about a topic which is a little uh, sensitive, and today is also a political topic, and somehow somewhat related. We might, actually, we're probably, we're not going to do any more Vaitri and Tanya today. It's something which um, definitely in the in Haredi or the Frum sectors isn't talked about that much. <coughs> today, 
um, there's a big um, movement out there for um, gay marriage. I think what a year ago or two years ago, that was uh, legalized officially by the by the Supreme Court. That so now it's a constitutional right that everyone has that you can marry whoever you want, regardless of gender. <clears throat> So, what is the Jewish view on this? I mean, it's unnecessary to say, obviously, that Yiddishkeit does not, uh, doesn't approve of this, and not only for Yidin, but also for, for Goyim also. It's a violation of the Shev Mitzvah for non-Jews. But the question is, deeper question is, it's a very fascinating topic. You have these people who, um, they, they've been fighting for many, many years for the right to get married. Why do they want to get married? What felt it is to get married? In fact, they won't even settle for civil unions. In other words, what, 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 do, you, what do you want? You want? You want to live together? Go live together. You want to get tax benefits and health insurance? We'll give you that also. But leave marriage. The word, let marriage be between man and woman. No, no, no. Insist. You want to get married. Why? What's your to gain, to, to gain by getting married? Sorry? Legitimacy. So why are you looking for legitimacy? So you don't feel guilty. Commitment. So a commitment you can make without marriage. Legitimacy. And here's the, here, here's the issue. Hey, lawyer. We've been... <laughs> lawyer. We, we live in a society that for religious reasons, and when I say religious, I'm not talking specifically about Yiddishkeit, I'm actually talking more about other religions, which are the majority religions of where we've lived for many hundreds of years where people who um, have homosexual um, desires and urges are looked down upon. They've been made to feel less than and dirty and uh, many other um, demeaning labels. And one can only imagine how difficult it is for someone who has such desires to live with oneself. Because when you live in a society where it's considered to be, again, uh, disgusting and dirty and, and, and low and all the other, all the other um, terms that are used, so it's very, very difficult to live a life in such a, such a, in such a way. And then it came, 10 years, uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, so yet uh, as America is becoming freer and society is becoming freer, and these people said, why in the world would I want to live with this stigma that my desires are bad. They're not bad. They're fine, they're legitimate, they're wonderful, and therefore, I need society to recognize that, um, <coughs> that my desires are just as legitimate as anyone else's desires. And they want, because again, they did not want to feel inferior. So when they, when, uh, when the Supreme Court um, said, um, you know, that gay marriage is a constitutional right. So as you said, legitimacy. These people had this biggest smile on their face and saying, you know, you, the world, for hundreds of years, you've been telling me that because I have this desire, I am therefore lower and less and worse than everyone else. And now the Supreme Court of the land has decided that's not the way. And that is the biggest um, uh, victory. victory that they can have. <clears throat> If the world would embrace a Tanya Perich of Zion attitude, this never would have been an issue in the first place. What's the Alter Rebbe saying over here in our Perik? Your desires, your temptations, don't make you inferior in any which way. Whatever they may be, whether they're what we call normal desires and temptations, when I say normal, that means what everyone, what most people experience, whether they're abnormal, meaning whether what certain people experience and other people don't, it doesn't make a difference. Everyone was created by Hashem and everyone has their desires and that's their Aveda. And no person is less than another person by virtue of their nature, by virtue of their character flaws, by virtue of their instincts or impulses. The, there's no such thing as a person, I mean, besides for tzaddikim, 
the rest of us, all of us, so we, we desire bad things all over the place. That doesn't make me a bad person. That means that that's my avoida. So when we took certain, a certain desire, and in terms of this conversation, we're talking about homosexuality. And yeah, we're guilty of it also. In other words, in the, in the Fuma community. That the desire, when the desire becomes puzzle, when the desire becomes, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Has a stigma. Yeah, when you stigmatize a desire, that's the worst thing in the world that you can do. Because then the person who has that desire says, I don't want to be stigmatized. I don't want to feel worried. Why, am I, why should I feel less than anyone else? So what am I... In other words, I think the fact that... Uh, we all, they're all they're, they're the normal desires that everyone has. We don't see anyone who um, was creating uh, um, pride parades for the fact that I like to overeat, for example. Okay, Overeating pride parade. All those people, because <laughs> because no one, it, 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 there isn't that stigma attached. The stigma is the worst thing that we can do as a society, but it's also the worst thing that we can do to ourselves. And we have to have an open community in this way and an open in ourselves and understanding this nakuda. There is no such thing as that a person who is created by Hashem faulty. It doesn't exist. And everyone, yes, has their nisyoyness, and everyone has their struggles, and everyone has their, um, their areas of, again, we're with unhealthy or undesirable instinct or impulse, but that, to the contrary, as you, as you just said, that Hashem says, that if Hashem says, I give you a struggle, that means that you also I give you the ability, <coughs> excuse me, to be able to, um, to be able to overcome the struggle. And what this gives us the biggest gift of being able to be comfortable with ourselves. Now, that, that's obviously not a... Um, it's not a, a license, right, to act upon any of these instincts or impulses which the Torah says aren't, uh, aren't allowed or aren't, uh, aren't, uh, are, are prohibited. They're not spiritually productive or physically productive, whatever that may be. But we have to understand this, Nakuda. Whatever our struggle may be, and every single one of us, I have a little secret for you, every single one of us has mainstream desires, and everyone has that one area where they think they're different than everyone else, and they have worse, a worse struggle or a worse temptation than everyone else also. You should know, yes, it's probably true, and that doesn't make a difference. All that means is that Hashem trusts you in another area, and that Hashem gives you an Aveda in another area, and this is an area in which you can serve Hashem another delicacy. View it that way. That area which you are busy killing yourself about, your own personality, understand that all this is that Hashem turning to you and saying, you see that? That's salt, that's pepper, it's vinegar, it's very bitter. Please mix it into some tayra mitzvahs, and that will be my, uh, my lunch for today. And um, the government and the court didn't <clears throat> make a distinction between a person's desires and, and what is right and wrong in behavior. There was not. There was I understand not that. I'm not talking about the behavior. I'm talking about the way we view people. Yeah. You have to understand that everyone has struggles, and no person's struggles makes them a lesser person. Actions make a person, uh, right. but, no, but struggles don't make a person lesser. Yes. <clears throat> 